Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you have questions about our church or following Jesus, feel free to reach out to us at info at theplantchurch.org. Now, here's today's message. As it is the first Sunday of Lent, we are starting a series through this Lent season on the Sermon on the Mount. And and what we're going to do during this season of Lent is we're going to specifically be focusing, uh, specifically focusing on these, these eight blessing statements that are famously known as the Beatitudes that Jesus makes at the beginning of this sermon. And, and so we're going to be taking uh, the next six weeks to pr- think through these, preach on these, reflect on these. And we're doing it in this Lent season because Lent, as we talked about last week, is a season for us to make space and remember how to suffer faithfully for Jesus. How many of you love to suffer? We talked about what it means to be honest about pain in our lives and, and suffering and, and being faithful to the way of Jesus and, and so Lent is a season where we get to make space for that. And I can think of no better words that open us up to faithful suffering and challenge us than the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the most famous sermon, and it is probably the most awkward sermon, because there's a lot of stuff in here I'm going like, he didn't mean that literally, right? Right? Okay, everyone was dead silent there. That was a little bit, but you know... Uh, but it's hard. It, it is a hard sermon. So I want you to know as we enter into this, the invitation during this whole Lent season as we approach the Beatitudes is to discover uh, the way of the kingdom that we are being invited into. It is a way first through the cross in order to get to the victory of resurrection. Jesus could not experience the victory of resurrection without going through the cross. And we cannot, as his disciples, experience the victory of resurrection without taking up our cross and following him. And so uh, these, uh, this Lent season will help us engage in that posture and see the beauty of the kingdom of God in the midst of it. So let's read uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. So we can get an overview uh, of this passage. And this morning we'll be focusing specifically on on verse 3. But let's read it all together. It says this. One day as Jesus, he saw the crowds gathering. Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil against you because you are my followers. 
Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Let's pray together this morning. Will you join me? Holy Spirit, we recognize that you are here among us. We recognize that you are here with us. We ask that we would be attentive to how you are inviting us this morning into your kingdom in a new way, in a fresh way. I pray, Lord, that we would begin to gain a glimpse of the good news of your kingdom in a way perhaps we've never seen before. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I want to, as we start talking about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to do two things this morning. I'm just going to give you a broad sense of what Jesus is doing here in this opening section of the sermon. And, and then we're going to specifically talk about the first blessing, those who are poor and realize their need for him, for theirs is the kingdom. So let, let me phrase it this way. Uh, if you can go to the, the next slide there. How many of you have ever seen this painting before? Yeah, so many of you know Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. It's uh, at the Museum of Modern Art, I think, in New York City, or at the Guggenheim. It's at the Metropolitan. For some reason, I thought it was at the Museum of Modern Art. Um, anyway, this uh, painting is over 100 years old, 1889, I think it was painted. Vincent van Gogh did this oil painting on a canvas. Uh, it, it's, it, has anyone ever seen it in person? I've seen it in person. I mean, pictures don't ever do really famous paintings justice. When you see paintings like this in person, you're just in awe of the colors and the beauty. And, and the, you can see all of the little paint strokes as Van Gogh moved the brush through the oil to, to move the oil paint into these swirling patterns. And it looks incredible. It's almost like leaping off the canvas at you. There's something like alive about the painting when you see it in person. But what uh, everyone who, who works in, in, in the industry or that is an artist, uh, my brother-in-law is an artist, he does a lot of painting and stuff, and, and I was asking him about what goes into a painting like this, and he was, he was telling me uh, about the, the priming and preparation process for the canvas. So, so before Van Gogh or before any painter working on a canvas uh, can, can get these beautiful pictures on it, you have to start by laying layer after layer of like a primer or an oil gesso or different things like that. And, and, and they use this to make sure that when you lay the paint on and begin to paint the layers, that the canvas doesn't soak up the paint. Because if you don't prime the canvas and prepare it properly first, when you begin to paint this beautiful picture, the colors are not going to be as vibrant. It's not going to pop in the way that it was meant to pop. And it's not going to captivate audiences the way that it was meant to captivate them. But there's something else, actually. If you don't prepare the canvas right, it will actually become corroded and deteriorate and rot. And so... 
This painting, in part, obviously now people have art restoration teams and stuff are keeping this painting going much, much longer even. But the thing about these is, um, if it did not get primed properly, the canvas would almost just start rotting away from the inside. And, and the colors would not be as vibrant. And so uh, there's a way of thinking about these opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount as kind of like Jesus priming a canvas for a painting to be laid on it. There's this beautiful description Jesus wants to give us of the kingdom of God that's like starry night. But he's like, I can't just start giving you this picture unless I prepare the surface of your canvas to receive this. Are you following me? So there's, there's something about these opening beatitudes that prepares us for the correct context in which to receive God's kingdom. If we're coming at this from a different context, as I'll show you in a minute, we might filter the words of Jesus' sermon very differently, and it might not last as long. The colors might not be as vivid when God's kingdom is on display in us. And so the Beatitudes are, in a sense, priming the canvas of the disciples and us today for being able to understand what this kingdom is really like. And so we need to understand the full vibrancy. And if we're going to understand the full vibrancy, we need to understand the kinds of people that get to experience the blessing and the goodness of God's kingdom because that's the context in which we can listen to the rest of Jesus' sermon and take it in. So we need to look at who the people are that are getting blessed because it's going to tell us everything we need to know about God's kingdom and how it works. Who are the kinds of people that Jesus says is blessed? Well, let's start right there. What does it actually mean to be blessed? There's eight blessing statements about these eight types of people. And, and these blessing statements, you can, you can think about uh, it as this is, these are the people who've got it good. They're living the good life. Their life is flourishing. This is not just a, oh, I'm blessed in, in my life in here. They are living in everything that's good. You should be jealous of them, is what's saying. I, I, I just think about uh, what we might think of describes that in our society. I was just thinking about the Super Bowl last week, right? And you see all the celebrities and all of the fancy luxury boxes, right? Hanging out, having a grand old time. You, kind of, you might think if you're really into football, they've got it good. You're describing them as blessed in the way Jesus uses this word. Oh, they've got it good. Some of you, I don't know, some of you big, you know, Swifties out there might really be into her relationship with one of the Kelseys. See, I have no idea who it is. Travis Kelsey, right? Uh, oh, man, they've got it good. Some of you might uh, look at people that are successful in your, your industry or your business and be like, they've got it good. Some of you might look at just people who are very, very wealthy or just respected. They've got it good. You could probably think of several more. Man, they've got it good. You might think of classmates or people in your school, peers who have it good. Man, what a life. People in Jesus' day, too, they had an idea about what it meant to be blessed, to, to have that good life. There's uh, some writings that are uh, known today. They were, they were popular. They're not part of our 
a scriptural canon, but they were kind of wisdom literature at the time that Jesus was around. And, and a couple of those uh, writings, they describe in a couple places the kinds of people that have it good according to Jesus's day. And this is a, a, a contemporary, so around the same time as Jesus. And this is their list. There's two different lists here. Of These are the people who are happy, have a good life. These are the people who are blessed. It says this, happy is the person who meditates on wisdom and re- reasons intelligently, who reflects on his, heart, uh, on his heart, on her ways, and ponders her secrets, that is wisdom, pursuing her like a hunter, that's who's being pursued, wisdom, and lying in wait in her past. So someone who, who's searching after wisdom, oh, they're so wise, they're, they're blessed. Someone who does whatever they can to, to follow after and find wisdom. Uh, and this, this other writing says, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed. The tenth my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in children, so you have to have kids to be blessed. A man who sees the downfall of his foes. They've got it good. Happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife and the one who does not plow an ox and ass together. That doesn't translate very well. I guess you can't afford, I guess you can't afford two ox. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who has not befriended, uh, this one, and the one who has not served an inferior. How many of you have ever been like, my boss is such an idiot, I totally do their job. Why am I working for them? You're like, oh, you don't have to work for that idiot anymore. You've got it good. <laughs> yeah, we can relate to these people in, in the first century. How great is the one, how good is the life of the one who finds wisdom? We could probably relate to some of these lists, right? Oh, yeah, they, they've got it pretty good. They've got it pretty good. We've got our modern ideas of, of who's got it good, who's blessed. And then we read Jesus' list of who's blessed. Blessed are those who are poor. Most translations say poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. The word used there for mourning is someone who's experienced grave injustice. They're grieving. They're they're literally helpless. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. God blesses those who are humble. God blesses those who are thirsting for justice. The implication is, is they're not getting it. Everything's going wrong. Everyone's being treated unfairly. This isn't right. God blesses the people who are merciful. God blesses those whose hearts are pure. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. Jesus introduces a list to us that is starkly in contrast to anything that was in his day considered a good life. And even in our day, we would think about as a good life. How many of you are actively trying to pursue just being as poor as possible? We'll get to, we're going to dig into that one more in a second to describe what that exactly means. But there's not a lot of us who would say, oh, they've got it good. But Jesus says they're inheriting the kingdom. So Jesus is going to flip things upside down, and he's, if he's going to paint this picture of the kingdom, he's going to set the stage and prime that canvas with a set of paints that are very, very unexpected to us and very unusual to us. 
This is what uh, one New Testament theologian and scholar says. He says, clearly, Jesus goes against the grain. Instead of blessing the one who pursues wisdom and reason and develops a reputation as a sage, and instead of blessing the one who has a good family or observes the Torah or the one who has all the right friends and develops a reputation as a righteous person or as a leader, instead, God, Jesus blesses those whom no one else blessed. They are a countercultural revelation of the people of the kingdom of God. You see, the painting of the kingdom of God is built on a canvas of the unblessable ones. Who are the people that you know and see? Oh, they don't have anything going for them. Might there be someone that is blessed? In the midst, the broken, the marginalized, the misunderstood, the weak, the unsuccessful, those who struggle for justice and peace but are persecuted for it. So we're going to be looking at these blessings uh, leading up to Easter. And like I said, this flips things upside down from the way we think about, oh, they've got it good. And what's important for us to do in this, in this Lent season, is to recognize, like I've said many times before, that the victory of Easter is on the other side of the cross. That learning how to live in this denial of self, which is where this is going to lead us, denial of seeking our own gain, our own benefit, which many of these Beatitudes point towards, this is what will lead us to the good life, Jesus is saying. It's in stark contrast and reality to everything that we live in. It's very different than the air we breathe. It's different than most everything we were taught growing up about what to pursue and what to prioritize. But I hope you can see a glimpse this morning of the painting that Jesus is painting and sketching for us as we begin. And we're going to start our conversation this morning for the next few minutes just talking about this first blessing in verse 3 that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is our first of those who are unblessable. Those who it doesn't make any sense that they have it good. And Jesus starts right off the bat. Blessed are the poor in spirit, most translations say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, I want to clarify what this means and unpack what this means. What does poor in spirit mean? Uh, this is both economically needy and spiritually desperate. We cannot uh, take the economic weight out of the Greek word for poor that's here in the, in the New Testament, in this, in this passage. We also can't take the spiritual desperation that's in that word spirit. So this is a people who are, yes, economically poor and, yes, spiritually desperate for God to move. And there's a lot of overlap between the two. Jesus probably had in mind, as he said this, a specific group of Jews called the Anawim. And the Anawim were kind of a combination of this. They were very, very poor Jews, uh, economically depressed, needy, desperate, but they were also spiritually desperate. Many of them found their way often to the temple, and some of them even would live or sleep in the temple proximity and grounds because they didn't have anywhere else to go. But they were people who were economically needy, but they were so dependent on the Messiah that was coming 
that they knew would liberate and save them and help them. And, and they didn't know what it would look like, but they knew that they just needed to be faithful to Jesus or faithful to God, faithful to Yahweh. And they, the Messiah was going to take care of them and they could trust. This was a group that was very unblessable. Uh, it is most likely that a Simeon, who actually is there in the temple when Mary and Joseph come to dedicate Jesus, Simeon is one of these Anawim. He's living in the temple. He's around the temple proximity all the times. He's longing for the Messiah, someone who can save and liberate liberate them and that's why he's so excited and over just overjoyed when he sees it's like all oh, my eyes have longed to see the salvation of Israel there's both this economic need that this person Simeon lives in but there is also a spiritual desperation for it to be God that answers it is also very likely that Jesus' own mother, Mary, came from this Anawim uh, people based on how she sings, my soul magnifies the Lord. Many of the things that she describes in there are very typical of this, this people. For more of a, of a modern uh, idea of what this might look like, I think uh, the black slavery in the United States is a perfect example of a people economically needy and spiritually desperate. Uh, there's a few different uh, great helpful accounts from uh, enslaved people. One said this, that they, they would dig big holes in the fields and they would get down in them and pray. Again, they had to dig down in the holes because they didn't want the white folks to see them praying, and they used to pray for freedom. There was another account that said, we prayed for this day of freedom. We, we come four and five miles to pray together to God that if we don't live to see it, to please let our children live to see a better day and be free so that they can be, give honest and fair service to the Lord and all mankind everywhere. And it's, it's, there's many accounts of this, that when slavery finally ended in the United States, majority of the slave population or the recently freed population were celebrating and worshiping God and giving thanks as the one who gave them freedom. This is a picture of those who are poor in spirit, those who are blessed, these, this combination of economic and spiritual desperation and need. You know, the, the poor in, in the early church had such a unique place in the heart of God and in the heart of the church. Uh, the, the early church uh, had a practice of going around to the poor and befriending them and caring for their needs. There's no social safety net. They, they're just hoping someone gives them a scrap of bread or something that they can find that was thrown out accidentally. And the church made it their business to go around and tend to the poor and care for the poor and provide for the poor. And they took this uh, from Matthew 25 when Jesus is saying to his disciples, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was, uh, I was naked and you clothed me. And the disciples respond, Lord, when did we see you like this? We never saw you like this. And he says, when you did that for the least of these who are my brothers and sisters. Jesus identifies the poor as his brothers and sisters. When you did it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And so the early church saw their interaction with the poor as sacred space, where they were not just ministering to the poor, they were meeting Jesus himself in that encounter. And, and so there's something about this space for those who are poor 
poor in economic conditions, desperate spiritually for God to move. There's something about these people that just is on God's heart so much that they're the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. I, I think this might be, I don't know if it's hard for you. This is hard for me to wrap my mind around a little bit, personally, if I'm honest. Um, I, you know, I, we, I talk with some of you. I talk with friends. My wife and I talk about this. It's like, there's that feeling. I was like, oh, well, I don't have a lot of money either. Like, you know, anyone feel like that? Like, yeah, I, I feel that. Like, I, you know, I feel the pinch. Like, I've got to make some choices. I, I totally get that. And I, I, I feel that in my own life too. But I want us just to, to help us see where we are in proximity to what Jesus is talking about. Just help give us a global perspective on what poverty really looks like. Um, so, so I want to invite you to do something. If you could put that next slide up. If you've got a phone with a QR code, will you just scan that real quick? This is going to be a little interactive. And, and what I want to invite you to do for just a moment is there, you're going to be directed to a website. And, and it's going to ask you just for a really simple bit of information um, where you can just put in like relatively, like you can guesstimate like what your household income was last year and how many people lived in your household. And then what it's going to do is it's going to return to you a, a, percentile, a percentile of where you rank in the global kind of wealth percentile. And this is like a guesstimation. It's not exactly accurate. It probably doesn't account for inflation in the last couple of years, but it gives you a good sense. Like you're going to be in the ballpark. But go ahead and scan that and, and check it out. And, and this blew my mind when I put in my information on this. Anyone getting it? Having internet trouble? No? We're, we're good? We're good? I, I know, because I put in some really low numbers, I know that none of you are lower than, like, in the top 60%, or what is that, 30, 30%. I, I know that, that there's probably no one here that is uh, less than, what am I trying to say? Wealthier than 60% of the world. Just from, just from the numbers that I put in. If you made $5,000 a year for a household of one, you would be wealthier than about 63% of the world. So I'm putting this out there not to say you don't have problems. I, I just want you to hear my heart in this in the context. But I want to put our, just to help us understand what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Just give us a global context to understand what does poor really mean? We're talking about poor, po. You can't afford the O and the R. That's a joke. Never mind. Uh, but but we have to understand when Jesus is saying blessed are the poor in spirit, he does not necessarily have in mind those who can't afford a new car, but they can go you know, out to eat once a month or something like that. He has in mind a people who have to make a decision over which child gets to eat today. Like we, we are talking about a, a level of desperation where it's like, I, now I don't want anyone to ever have to experience this, to be completely clear. But it's because we're like, ooh, I would never want to have to experience that, that we immediately have this idea in our mind. I'm like, I mean, that, like, they don't have it good. You see what I'm saying? And these are the very people around the world today that Jesus is saying, blessed. Blessed. 
are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the kinds of people, not just because they are economically poor, but also they have this spiritual hunger. God, please move. Help. Save us. Do something. This is what Jesus is getting at. I I think this is why he, he ties together often here. He's tying together spiritual desperation and economic need. This is a really hard one for me, personally. This is a really hard one. I feel threatened when I hear this because I'm like, I'm having a hard time as it is. It's not, it's tight right now for everyone. This is going to a redemptive place, so just bear with me, but I know this is hard to hear. But this is the same context. If Jesus is tying economic need and spiritual desperation together, this is also why Jesus says later in Matthew, it's very hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. And as you've seen from taking a look at that, like we are the rich in this story, globally speaking. Now, you might not be rich relevant to, you know, your neighbor down the street or the Joneses or whatever. I hope no one's name, last name is Jones in here. That was figurative. But, but you hear what I'm saying. There, there is something. Jesus says it's, you can't enter the kingdom of God if you're rich. He says it's really hard because you're not desperate the way the poor in spirit are desperate. I I feel this in my own life. I don't know if any of you have felt this. It is easy for me to make ends meet and move money around from month to month and make it happen in my own strength. Many of you do this. But there's a sense in which God's saying there's a deeper level of desperation that is getting a blessing that I think is just hard for us to wrap our heads around. I don't think that we've realized what the, the, the belief in our society and culture about financial security and comfort, I don't think we've realized how that has affected our ability to hunger and be desperate for God to move. Because at the end of the day, I can, I can move it around, I can make it work. I might have to sacrifice something this month but I keep my house, I keep my car, you know, generally speaking. I know that's not always the case even in our, our society. But you hear where my heart is with this. You hear where I'm going. But if you're poor, Jesus is saying, if you're poor in spirit, it is likely, much more likely that you are going to be in this space or easier to be in this space of desperation. This is why Proverbs said, it's better to be poor so I'm paraphrasing, better to be poor with a, a peace of mind than to be rich and full of anxiety and confusion. There's something about having less that actually frees us sometimes. So how can we become poor in spirit? 
I, I want to be clear that these Beatitudes are not really actually about, okay, I have to be poor in spirit, check. I have, to be, uh, I have to mourn so I can be comforted, check. What Jesus is describing here is not a to-do list. He is describing the nature of how upside down and unusual his kingdom is. Are you following me? So it's not a, I guess I'm not allowed to own anything. That's not always the case. Joseph of Arimathea was very wealthy, and you know what he used his wealth to do? He he gave Jesus his tomb to use for a few days. Some of you, you're getting there. (laughs) Extremely wealthy. He was able to go talk to the governor, the Roman governor. You can't just walk in and talk to the Roman governor. He had access, very wealthy, but he was a devoted follower of Jesus. Now, on the flip side, there's the rich young ruler who says, I've done everything. What do I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he says he walks away very sad because he was very, very wealthy. The key here is to be poor in spirit is to live in what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this life of privation, this denial of self. Of not making your pursuit of security financially as the goal, but actually being free from money needing to be the thing that props up your life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this on this. He says, privation is the lot of the disciples in every sphere of their lives. This is how he describes you if you're a follower of Jesus. They have no security, no possessions to call their own, not even a foot of earth to call their home, no earthly society to claim their absolute allegiance. In, fo- uh, in following him, they lost even their own selves and everything that could make them rich. And it is this posture. You might have something, but it's like you don't have something if you're following Jesus. Are you with me? And it's this posture of privation, of self-denial that Jesus says, oh, these are the blessed ones. These are the blessed ones. How do we get there? How how do we have this posture? One of our our Lent practices that we're going to be practicing during this Lent season is generosity. I have found, whether it's through being generous to someone, whether it's through tithes and offerings to the church, whether it's through giving to international workers, I have found one of the greatest antidotes in my life when I'm like doing our monthly budget and I'm figuring out what bills to pay and how much left, and I feel like that little bit of fear or anxiety. You know what I'm talking about, right? You have that fear or anxiety that comes up. Do you know what the best antidote is to that? I do like one of two things. I either give money away right away or my tithe is like auto pay. I do it early. I don't want that money. I don't want to hold on to it. I don't want to touch it. Tithing, like we've talked about this before, like tithing or offering or being generous, it's not for them. It's not even for the church. It's for you so money doesn't have a hold on your soul. Giving to the person in need, supporting the food pantry, whatever it is, befriending someone in need that's like literally can't get it together. Being radically generous this Lent season and seeing if someone's got some credit card debt you can help alleviate a monthly payment of or two or all of it. Uh, student loan debt. How many of you got student loan debt? There's, there might be some generous people going like, yeah, I could cover that payment for you. I know, but then it's like you know each other's financial business. Like, read Acts 2, the kingdom of God. Like, this is what the church does for each other. I know, everyone's freaking out. I'm going to get emails this week. 
As soon as you talk about money, that's when you get, that's when, that's when you get the emails. That's how you know it's the biggest idol we have. I feel this in my own life. I hope you're hearing that. I'm not talking to you as someone who has this figured out. I find constantly when I have that fear, that financial hold on me, or there's th- that thing that is gripping me, like I am not going to break that off by just ignoring it. I have to come in the opposite spirit and I have to start being radically generous. And so if we are going to be a church that's poor in spirit and begins to posture ourselves in that self-denial, that privation that Bonhoeffer talked about, we've got to be a people that is willing to just let go of whatever we possess. And when we do so, we are priming the canvas of our souls to receive the kingdom of God. We're preserving our soul from rot. We're letting the true vividness of the colors of the kingdom of God shine through in our life in incredible ways. So there's really good news. When we enter into this life of of self-denial, I want you to hear this good news. When you live in this truth that you don't have to pursue this financial security or you don't have to have it all figured out or be the biggest financial, excuse me, success, there's good news for you. Just listen. Here's some of the good news. Uh, You don't need as much as you think you do. And there's good news in that. Because a lot of times our purchasing power is tied to our status and significance in our culture. If I can't buy what you can buy, I don't, I'm not as good as you. I'm not as successful. There's good news. You don't need as much as you think you do. This is good news. Money doesn't buy you blessing. It just buys convenience. And Jesus did not say, blessed are those with a lot of money. Their life will be convenient. There's good news. You don't need to prioritize money to receive an inheritance. There's already a kingdom available to you, God says. There's good news. We do not need to live under the shame of debt or financial failure or any other kind of poverty. You can count yourself with those who are blessed by God. There's good news our ability or our disability to provide every want and experience that our children might desire is not a reflection of whether or not we are good parents. What is a reflection, perhaps, of your parenting is how desperate and hungry you are for God's security, God's protection, God's provision. There's an inheritance there that only God can give, that the world will never give. Now, last thing before I get angry emails. Proverbs says, and a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. We're not saying your goal today is to dump the 401k and the 403b. But your goal today is to ask, what might Jesus be challenging me on with this? Perhaps for someone, that might be the radical call. I'm not going to sit here and prescribe what that is. But you know, where where are the hangups? Where are the fears? Where are you not experiencing desperation for God because it's become too financially comfortable? Or you believe it needs to be comfortable? 
I want you to see the good news of the kingdom of God. If we really believe that those who are poor in spirit are experiencing the inheritance and the blessing of the very kingdom of God, if we really believe that's true, how then shall we live? How then shall we handle our money? How then shall we handle our resources that have been entrusted to us? There is good news that you do not need as much as you think. And it is very good news that because we all experience a little bit of that twinge of, I don't have enough. There's good news that in that moment of that twinge, you can respond and say, ah, but the blessed ones are those who are poor in spirit. And even though you might have a lot more than most of the world, you can still engage in that self-denial heart posture in those moments and say, I don't need it. I have a kingdom awaiting me as an inheritance. So I want to leave us with a, a question to reflect on before we take communion and before we close in worship. And it's, the question is this. In what way might Jesus be using this hard teaching? Because it is hard. This is hard. It's hard for me. In what way might Jesus be using this hard teaching to set you free from the world's expectations regarding money? So as we do every week, we like to prepare and examine our hearts before we take communion. The Apostle Paul says to examine yourself so that uh, we do not take communion improperly or irreverently. And so we're going to, I'm just going to invite our, our team to come up. If you could just uh, play for us for, for a moment. And, and I want to invite you to just spend a few moment, moments reflecting on this question and, and ask the Lord, what is Jesus inviting you into through this? How might Jesus be using this to teach and instruct you? Thanks so much for joining us today. If this podcast has been helpful for you to know Jesus and make him known, then check out our website for more sermons and other resources, theplantchurch.org.